Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates current classic and cult films. I'm Steve Rubin. Here it's always Saturday night. Uh, we're on the Lock 22 network, and we're pleased to have you. And I'm also very pleased to have our guest tonight, Bill Gray, uh, an actor that has participated in some legendary productions. Um, I certainly know him from the day the earth stood still back in 1951. Uh, he was on the, the celebrated television series for many years, Father Knows Best, and has done other things, and he's a big motorcycle guy. Welcome to the show, Bill. Well, I'm happy to be here. You know, I, I remember coming out to Malibu in 76. I had just started writing for this magazine in Chicago called Cine Fantastique. And Fred Clark, the editor, was just thrilled that I loved 1950s science fiction films as much as he did. And it was just a, just a pleasure to hear that you would talk to me since uh, nobody else from the show was pretty much around. Although I have to say that years later, I guess, uh, well, actually it wasn't that much later. It was a year later. I was in England interviewing Roald Dahl uh, for a book I was writing about the James Bond movies. And I happened to, he was happened to be married to um, Patricia Neal. So I, she a, uh, she's a champ. Yeah, she was a champ and certainly, um, Certainly, uh, uh, you know, a great force in that movie. But let's so let's uh, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, you're an L.A. guy. Uh, you grew up in Los Angeles. Where did you go to high school? Uh, well, for a time, uh, a, a little bit of the time was uh, University High, but uh, most of the most of the high school years were spent uh, in the studio school. That's with air quotes. Uh, that, uh, but I, but I did graduate from uni. That's uh, that's where my wife, my wife went to school, and I, I was on the other side of uh, uh, down the street, Hammy. I went to Hammy. Hammy and uni were always rivals. Hamilton High. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, when did you get the first inkling that you wanted to do acting? Well, I, I was about five years old and uh, running up and down the aisle of a theater that my older brother was in a play. And this lady came up to me and said, take me to your mother. And uh, <laughs> it, turns, it turns out this lady was an agent, Lola Moore was her name. And, uh, and it, uh, as chance would have it, uh, she, she was uh, also my mother's agent. She didn't know, we, we didn't know that at the time, but it turned out that uh, that was my mother's agent. And she told my mom that she thought she could get me some work. And, uh, my mom said, fine, and uh, I was up for it. Uh, so I started going on interviews, and I seemed to get every interview I went on. It was it was uh, weird. There were just little, you know, no speaking parts, like just bit parts, basically. Newsboy on the corner, that kind of thing. Your your mother was an actor. I don't think people knew that. Or oh, yeah, yeah. Be Be Beatrice Gray, and, and she was opposite uh, Johnny McBrown and Bob Steele and Hoot uh, Gibson and and she, yeah, she did. Uh, she did a lot of uh, westerns for Monogram. Did you ever visit her on? Did you visit her on the set? No, I never did. Uh, but we did. We did work in the same movie one time later on. As a, I, I think I was probably uh, oh, around ten or so, and uh, we we both had little bit parts in uh, in a movie uh, that, that with uh, 
uh, of course, the, the comedy team, uh, Abbott and Costello, meets the monster or the Frankenstein or one of those ones. I don't know which one it was now. But uh, she she yelled fire in, in her scene, and, and uh, we weren't in the same scene. And I had a little bit with... Uh, with the, uh, the the low uh, the, the short rotund one, uh, uh, Lou, Lou Costello. Yeah, Lou. I, I was I I was playing Indian apparently, and and uh, shot an arrow and it stuck in a post that was near him. And I went up to him and uh, and said, "Give me my arrow." And he tried to pull it out and couldn't pull it out. And so I I kind of uh, gave him a sour look and I pulled it out and that was the end of it. So. Just a bit part, but uh, we both were in the same movie, but not not connected, you know. It's so funny because uh, people today don't realize how big a force Abbott and Costello were in those days. Um, yeah, yeah, they, they made a whole bunch of movies, uh, no question. Um, what was Hollywood like in those days, Bill? I mean, today it's... Uh, by the way, I think the name of the movie we were talking about is called Bud is called Abbott and Costello Meet the Killer. It was the Boris Karloff one in 49. So you're right. You're, yeah, you're just about 10 years old. Yeah, I, I never had a, uh, a, a, a I didn't have any scenes with Boris, which is unfortunate. That would have been nice. Yeah, yeah it was just another job. You know, the, 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 I, 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 I got dozens, scores of, of little bit parts like that. Uh, until I was, you know, 11 or 12 or so. And then I started getting larger roles. Was it, would you say that Hollywood in those days was a more respectful uh, world? And was it, was there less backbiting? I mean, today we hear about all the, the trouble that people see in the business. A lot of the people taking it, being taken advantage of and the rudeness. Uh, I, I just gather that back in the forties and fifties, People were a little bit more respectful. Did you get that impression? Well, I was certainly, uh, I, I certainly got uh, a lot of respect. Uh, uh, in fact, that was one of the things I liked about it the most was that uh, when I was on the set, uh, I was treated as if I was uh, uh, a, a, a human being and a, and a, and a responsible uh, professional actor. Even if it was little little parts, uh, they they treated you like, well, you're here to do a job and. Uh, you're expected to do the job, and uh, and I and I did the job. And I, I I thought that was all kind of nice. I didn't. I never socialized with anybody, so I don't. I don't know what the uh, the the atmosphere of uh, you know like the, the the showbiz uh, parties or any of that. I never got involved in any of that. So I I, I don't know what the business was like, but on the set uh, everything was uh, very professional, and uh, I I. I uh, I responded to that very well. I enjoyed the hell out of it. Well, Robert Wise's movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still, is considered uh, one of the first studio science fiction movies of note, the same year that Howard Hawks' The Thing came out. Uh, it's, it's a legendary film. It's, it's very seminal for me. I did see it on the big screen. Um, I lived in West LA as well. I, I lived near the, the old stadium theater on Pico near Robertson. And on Saturday mornings, they would run uh, science fiction movies. They'd run a couple of them. And I remember vividly seeing it on the big screen. Tell, tell us a little bit about what you remember about getting that role. I think that's probably one of your bigger roles. 
Oh yeah, that was uh, uh, that was one of the the the, the first of, of the larger larger roles that I got. Uh, but as I recall, it was just another interview. You know, I, you go on these interviews and uh, you, you go into the office, and there's the director or the producer or casting person or whatever, and you talk for you know a few minutes, and uh, they might ask you to read something or not. Uh, I, I don't recall what that particular interview was like, but. Uh, they were all pretty much the same, basically. And sometimes you read and sometimes you didn't. Reading was always a little difficult for me because I'm dyslexic and that I kind of transpose words and numbers and, uh, you know, it's kind of it's difficult to read. But uh, I don't know. I, I, uh, I seem to have gotten through that aspect of it. We didn't do any testing on that particular uh, part. I just got the part. And... Uh, didn't really realize at the time that it was going to be such a uh, really uh, important movie. And, and uh, I don't think, uh, not th well, maybe the producers knew what they were doing, but uh, I know uh, uh, my mom uh, in, in the movie, um, she, uh, she didn't take it all that seriously. She, uh, she tells a story about when they were in the, uh, the cab running away from the army it was after him and uh, and Klaatu uh, was uh, telling her you know if, if anything happens to me uh, you, you've got to go to Gord and say these words you know and, uh, that when they were rehearsing in the, in the taxi cab you know a projection screen and back and all that stuff uh, she she would uh, she would have to say the words and every time she started to say the words she'd giggle and uh, just couldn't get, you know, they did a couple of rehearsals and finally, uh, 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 what's his name? Um, I'm blanking on the, uh, well, the, the character, uh, the, the spaceman. Oh, glad uh, to uh, Michael Rennie. Michael Rennie. Yeah. He said, is that the way you're going to do it? You know? And uh, she said, no, I can, I can pull, I can hold it together when we roll. Uh, and, and she did, you know, but, you know, it was all, it was all kind of just silliness for her. And, uh, and, and I think she, she had, she had no idea it was going to become a, a classic and, and, and I think a very, one of the most important movies that, uh, that came out at the time, because it wasn't just sensational. It had, it had a, a message and, and, and a meaningful message that's, that's meaningful today, even perhaps more so today than it was then, even though. It was, uh, those were the days of duck and cover, you know, and uh, MAD, you know, MAD, uh, Mutual Assured Destruction. So this, uh, this addressed uh, those, uh, those serious issues. And, uh, and I couldn't, I can't be more proud to have been involved in that movie. It's, uh, it's the most important thing that I've ever done, for sure. Well, like, like you, I remember sitting in my elementary school classroom and the teacher would walk in and all of a sudden she would yell drop and we would all <laughs> we would all drop on the floor and go under our desks as if that was going to protect us from a nuclear blast but yeah right yeah be be sure to hold your hands over your head you know <laughs> <laughs> what they didn't tell you is to kiss your uh, whatever goodbye and you know that um, yeah. you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. The movie, I, I had the, I had the honor of, um, going up to Stanford to interview, uh, Julian Blaustein, who was teaching up there, the producer. Yeah. And Julie Blaustein was a very fine producer. He had just done the Jimmy Stewart movie, um, 
Broken Arrow, which kind of was one of the first uh, movies to portray Native Americans in a positive light. Uh, uh-huh. And so he he liked uh, material, uh, interesting material, and perhaps uh, trend-setting material. And he he um, he told me that uh, he got a copy of the original book, uh, excuse me, short story by Harry Bates called mm-hmm. Farewell to the Master. And then they got Edmund North to do the screenplay. And Edmund North is a very well-known screenplay. He later shared an Oscar with Coppola for Patton. I interviewed him um, uh, back when I interviewed you, and he. I asked him. <laughs> I asked him the question. I said to him, uh, um, Ed- Edward, um, what does Klaatu Barada Nikto mean? Actually, it's Edmund. I'm sorry, not Edward. And he told me what it meant. He said that he, the translation, as, as far as he was concerned, was that there's hope for Earth if the scientists can be reached. And uh-huh. so, so there you have it. Uh, there's, there, there's the translation. Um, you know, uh, the movie has so many indelible images for me. Uh, I think that um, I remember vividly you telling me that when you're out there in the park atmosphere where they the ship had landed and you first see Gord approaching those two soldiers on sentry duty you told me that uh uh I think Robert Wise's instruction something about saucer eyes yeah you know I I uh they give uh, Robert Wise or they used to give him uh, these uh, honorariums or uh, you know awards or something and and they uh, invariably they'd show that the earth stood still and and uh, I was invited to a few of those and in one of them I I, I asked him about that uh, I, I, and then and then uh, th- that my eyes were supposed to be as big as saucers and and he said he, he didn't give me that uh, that in that direction that was that was in the uh, in the stage direction in the script and I I, I somebody sent me a script of it a while back and I looked at I looked at in I looked into it and. And sure enough, it wasn't his direction, which would have been he, he kind of gave me a free hand. He didn't really, you know, we'd rehearse it. And he kind of saw that I, I got to I got the point of things. And he, he left me alone pretty much the time, actually. And he, yeah, I kind of I I put it to him. Did you tell me that I have my eyes as big as so? He said, no, I didn't do that. And, uh, and sure enough, he didn't. It was North was uh, wanted my eyes as big as saucers. The um this the the place where the ship is, um I I pretty that's that's on the back lot which is now Century City correct? Yeah yeah that's where that's where it all happened and and I I remember uh, one of my most vivid memories of the movie itself is is the uh, st- people standing around a fifty five gallon uh, drum. That was uh, that they had stuff you know, on fire inside it, and everybody was standing around it trying to warm themselves up because we shot at night, and uh, and it was just devilishly cold, uh, really, really super cold back there. That's that's the most vivid memory I have of the movie, actually. It's it's a very atmospheric uh, scene. Uh, you know, the it's funny when you people forget that when you make the movie. Bernard Herrmann's music didn't exist yet. So you actually 
you know, there is no music. And yet when you see the finished movie, you have this tremendously atmospheric Bernard Herrmann music, which of course is one of the legendary scores. Um, you're, you have a very wonderful on-screen relationship with uh, Michael Rennie. What, what can you tell me about Michael that you remember? Well, he, he, uh, he was really easy to work with, very professional, uh, you know, no, no fooling around. It was all, it was all business, and, uh, and he was good at it. And, uh, but what I really remember about him was that he, he was very solicitous to my mother, who was, who was still a pretty good-looking lady at the time. I mean, she was, uh, you know, she was a leading lady to Bob Steele on, on many occasions, and uh, she still had, uh, she still had her, her, uh, her act together. And he would make sure that uh, she had uh, a place to sit, you know, uh, and 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 coffee and uh, whatnot. He was he was kind of put the move on her for all I know. I, I don't I don't know how far it went, but it, uh, she, he was definitely interested in her for sure. The um, you know, the the Gort robot, of course, is another iconic uh, uh, element of the day. The Earth stood still. I know that. Uh, um, it was a combination of a, a fiberglass statue that stood outside the ship. And then, of course, there was the great uh, um, Locke Martin who wore the suit. Um, now, you're, you see Gort walking. So obviously you were on the set that night, you know, trying to keep warm. What, do you, what are your memories of, of Locke Martin and that suit? Well, I do remember that uh, he couldn't be in it for more than uh, oh, 10 or 15 minutes at a time. It was uh, about quarter inch uh, latex, uh, and it was uh, just you know very heavy. It must have weighed you know a couple of hundred pounds, perhaps. And, uh, and he he was large, but he wasn't uh, 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 he wasn't robust. He was rather frail, actually. And so I, I remember him getting out of it as, as as soon as he could. Every every time he had the opportunity to not be in it, he he took that opportunity. And I yeah, he, do remember. He, yeah, there's one there's one scene uh, I, I noticed. I've seen the movie probably or a dozen times or so now. But there is one little scene for just a second. You can see the zipper in the back because they had two suits. They had a they had a front zipper uh, front entry and a, and a, and a back uh, uh, zipper entry. And depending on you know how the shot what the shot called for, he would get into that that suit and. The, there's one scene where you see, you catch just, a, just the quickest little glimpse of the zipper on his on his left leg. I think it is. Uh, uh, just for a second, I'm I'm really surprised that it got uh, that it got through. Uh, really, because uh, usually they they catch that kind of thing, you know. Well, what's funny is that today's technology with um, the ability to stop frame and see things up close and the detail didn't exist back then. So they figured that nobody would pretty much notice that. They're the same. Well, it, it, it is hard to notice. You got to, you got to, uh, I, I just caught it one time and you got to look for it. You got to, you got to know it's there almost and look for it. But, uh, but it's there. there. You're in a pretty big crowd scene, by the way. Uh, in the daytime, you're out there walking with um, with Michael, and the news reporter comes up to you, and and you you tell them that it's the biggest spaceship I ever saw. That, there was a good crowd. Yeah. There was a good crowd out there that day, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. That uh, that was uh, it was probably uh, oh close to a hundred people. It seemed like maybe maybe not quite that many, but 
but there was a lot of people. In fact, there was one kid that I'd worked with before, uh, uh, Anthony, uh, oh, what the hell's his last name? Uh, Anthony, oh, anyway, I'm blanking on his name, but he was a kid that I'd worked with uh, uh, on other on other things. And he had a kind of an, a little close up as well in that same in that same uh, situation, and I, so he, he might have been. He might have been the newsboy, perhaps, who's uh, could selling. Be, could be, yeah. Um, uh, most of your scenes, um, when you're not with Michael, you're with Patricia Neal, uh, who I thought, as as Helen Benson, did a, just a wonderful job uh, as someone who's stuck in an, a very uncomfortable position. Uh, what do you remember about her? Uh, just that she was just a, a, a real person, you know, like... Uh, no, no, uh, no airs or anything. Just, uh, you know, she was a, a professional actress doing a job just like the rest of us. And, and doing it so well. Um, and let's see, you, do, you don't have a scene with Sam Jaffe because he's not there when you go to his uh, little office to, to leave yeah. the calling card. Um, I, I, I'm sorry about that, too, because I mean, he, he, he was perfectly cast for that. And uh, a little story I heard uh, down the road is that he had, uh, when, when, the, uh, uh, when, when Michael uh, uh, suggested that, uh, that he was the one they wanted, apparently uh, he, he was on a blacklist and uh, it came from casting, said, no, we can't, really, we can't really deal with him. He's on this blacklist. And uh, Apparently, uh, uh, Daryl Zanuck said, "Well, screw the blacklist. We're we're going to do it. We're going to use him, and that's the end of it." But you got to give Daryl Zanuck some thumbs up on that one. Oh yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> there's there's so many interesting things now. Uh, as I understand it, you did not go to Washington D.C., did you? No, that was all second unit stuff. All of the uh, the, the Arlington Cemetery and all that was uh, somebody that was about my height and uh, about my build, and uh, he, he walked a little little funny, a little different than I do, but uh, it, it it all it all worked, you know. Oh yeah, no no question about it. Do, um, do you re do you remember going to a premiere? No, I don't remember the premiere. Matter of fact, the only the only uh, I'm sure they must have had one, but uh, and and I I'm sure I would have been invited if they had, but uh, I I don't have any memories of it. Uh, my memories are are of seeing it uh, years later uh, in the, in the in the theaters when they'd uh, when they'd give the uh, you know uh, lifetime achievement award kind of thing to uh, Robert Wise. Sure, that's that's sure. That's, that's, that's when I remember it from. The um, there's a funny story. Uh, ABC Los Angeles used to run a movie at 6 p.m. before news took over the dial and they would run a full length feature film in a 90 minute time slot with uh, all those commercials. So uh, <laughs> a movie with a significant length, at least an hour and 40 minutes, like a day of the earth. So someone actually told me that um, the movie begins with Michael Rennie walking down the street looking for the rooming house. They completely cut the opening. Oh, my gosh. Really? Wow. <laughs> yeah, I remember the scene of him walking. He's carrying a suitcase, and 
Right. And I think they go in for a close-up on the suitcases as Mr. Carpenter or something like that. Are. And did you know that Edmund North actually put in a Christ metaphor in the story very subliminally? That, uh, you know, they they he gets the uniform and happens to be from a guy named Carpenter. Yeah, that's resurrected. That's, that's pretty subtle. But, uh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 ha- I had heard about the... Uh, the uh, the references uh, that he used there, and I think there were some other ones too that were well well concealed, but uh, there definitely there. Sure. Now the same year that you did uh, the day the earth stood still, I noticed that you did you did a smaller role. It's just in the beginning, but you got a chance to play the young Jim Thorpe. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I did, and and uh, I, I do remember. I didn't I didn't realize who uh, Curtis was at the time. Uh, I didn't know that he'd uh, directed Casablanca, or you know, but I do remember that uh, he, he, he English was not his first uh, language, and and I remember him saying to me at one time, giving me some directions of something like, "Do what I mean, not what I say," <laughs> which kind of stuck with me a little bit. <laughs> now, that, uh, for those of you who are listening to Bill Gray talk about his film career. Uh, Bill played the young Jim Thorpe in Jim Thorpe All-American, and the, the person who played Jim as an adult was Burt Lancaster. Now, you you were obviously in the movie at a different time than Burt. Did you ever get a chance to meet Burt? Never did, no. no. I, as a matter of fact, the only thing that I, I kind of remember about that movie outside of uh, uh, Curtis's uh, 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 telling me to do, do what he meant, you know, uh, was that they, they didn't uh, let me do the running. He, he, the big thing with uh, Thorpe was he, he uh, as a kid, apparently this, this part of the story is that uh, he didn't like school all that much, and uh, he ran back uh, and beat his father back to the, back to the house running when his father was in a, in a buckboard, you know, had, had a couple of horses. But uh, young, young Thorpe was uh, out running the horses, but they didn't, want, they didn't let me do the running which I felt uh, I didn't like that part of it very much. But I guess they figured, you know, if he, if he trips and, you know, and scratches his nose, then, then we can't do the other scenes, you know, something like that. I'm so sure. are you saying that you had a stunt double? Apparently, I, they came up with somebody that did the running for me. Yeah. Mm. Interesting, interesting. I, I think the dialogue is, is the father says, you ran 15 miles. And I think you say, 12, Pa, I ran through the hills. <laughs> yeah. Right. See, even in small parts, they're, they're they're memorable in some ways. Well, the people who are listening to you tonight uh, w- would kill me if I didn't ask you about uh, Father Knows Best. Obviously, it was a a much deeper relationship. Can you talk a little bit about how you got that role? Yeah. Well, no, that was just another interview, but we did do a test for that. Uh, they had, uh, uh, I, I think, I think we tested with the. Uh, uh, with everybody that actually ended up doing the, doing the part, they 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 were looking for everybody they could. I think everybody, every kid actor in town uh, had a shot at it, and uh, we we did uh, we did a test around the uh, kitchen table uh, with Eleanor Donahue and uh, Lauren Chapin and I uh, were testing for the thing, and uh, it it, it was. Uh, I had no idea that it was going to turn into, you know, six years of steady work, but uh, it did. And uh, I, uh, 
I, I couldn't have been I couldn't have been more lucky because we got involved the, the first year or so of, of shooting it. We had this director, uh, uh, Bill Russell, and he was uh, kind of a journeyman hack. Actually, he wasn't a lot uh, inspired. But the second director we had for the for the vast majority of the of the uh, shows was Peter Tewksbury, who was a genius, absolute uh, the best director I you know short of Robert Wise that I ever worked with, uh, and and Curtis. I guess I got to throw him in there as a good director as well. But uh, but this guy Peter, he uh, he really he really is responsible for the uh, the staying power of the uh, of the show. You can. You can watch it today, and, and and other than, you know, some of the foolish dialogue with golly geez and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> it, it, it holds up really well, and uh, and it's all he's he's the guy who uh, made it all happen. Tell us a little bit about Robert Young. Oh well, I'll tell you what my my favorite story of Robert Young was. He told me he told me one day uh, uh, about the title of the show. Um, it was he had a radio show that I I'd never I'd never heard the radio show, but it, apparently it was on for several several years. And then they decided they wanted to take it to uh, he and his partner uh, Eugene B. Rodney. Uh, they wanted to take it to television, so they tried to get a sponsor for it. And uh, and the only sponsor that was interested in the show uh, that had a time slot available, they they had a ten o'clock uh, time slot on NBC or CBS. I forget which. But anyway, they uh, they said, uh, uh, well, let me talk, start with the the show on radio was Father Knows Best with a question mark, and that and and the uh, the the people at Kent Cigarettes that was the sponsor that was interested. They said uh, we'll take the show, but we uh, you got to drop the question mark. We don't want any question mark at the end of the title. And and Bob told me that uh, he fought to keep the question mark and. Uh, and and that that it was a deal breaker with uh, with Kent Cigarettes. They said, uh, well, if you insist on the question mark, uh, we'll, uh, we're not interested in the show. So That's he folded. Strange, That's a strange he, story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, isn't it? I mean, it, it turns the whole his whole concept on his head. You know, I mean, here he is being ironic, and 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 the people at Kent Cigarettes say uh, uh, no. No ambiguity, please. Uh, we've got people to kill, basically. Also, I don't think uh, Father Knows Best fits into a 10 o'clock time slot. I mean, that doesn't... No, it didn't do very well. In fact, it was dropped by the uh, network, uh, and, and uh, apparently there was, uh, it did have a following, and the following was, uh, was large enough to where, uh, uh, I guess, another network picked it up and put it at 8 o'clock, which is, you know, where it belonged. And we're talking about the radio show or the TV show? No, no, the, the radio show. I don't know. I don't know what uh, who handled that. Okay, but uh, but the uh, the television show only ran for a year or so. Uh, the first season was uh, it didn't have all that good a rating, but uh, the people who who did watch it uh, apparently liked it and uh, wrote in and said, "Hey, we, you know, we, we'd we'd like to see it." And uh, Apparently CBS uh, said, "Well, we'll 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 take it up." I, I I forgot whether it started on CBS and went to NBC or started on NBC and went to CBS. It was one of the two. But the oh, rest of the, after after it was picked up, it uh, it started doing well in a in a time slot that's appropriate for a family show, you know. 
and it was in the top 10 for for years well it's still very much beloved uh for that wonderful cast and and those stories of wholesome stories which uh wholesome fair i think is to be praised I, i sometimes i wonder if uh you know, uh, well, there are shows today that that have a wholesomeness about them. I, I my wife and I watched that NBC NBC show. This is us, which I find to be, you know, has edginess to it, but also is very wholesome. That the, the wholesomeness yeah. hasn't disappeared from television, although sometimes I think edginess is the the uh, the um, main main thing. Are there shows today that you like? Are, are you? Uh, oh yeah, there's some there's some really good television. I mean, absolutely. I I uh, I'm kind of. Uh, of, of, of two, two uh, minds on, on the fact that I got, I got busted right after the show for uh, uh, marijuana. And that was pretty much the end of my TV career, or my acting career, basically. But I, uh, I, 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 I was kind of tired of, of, of just doing that one character, you know, for six years. So the fact that I couldn't get any work wasn't the end of the world uh, psychologically for me. It, was, it fit, into, fit into what I was interested in doing anyway but i, I would uh, think that you stayed in touch with everybody because of that family atmosphere is that true yes i did i, I robert young was uh, uh uh let me put it this way he was cordial he wasn't really all that warm or anything he was a, he was a real a real person didn't have any edge or anything like that and he did he did make sure that the show was shot as if it were a movie we, we never cut any corners, you know, if, if a word wasn't right or if, if there was any little shadow anywhere or whatever, we'd take another, we'd do another take. And 10 or 12 takes was not unusual at all. And that, but that was unusual for television at the time. I, I, I didn't really realize that at the time. I said I'd only done movies before that anyway. So I was used to uh, the thoroughness that, uh, that we had on that show. But, uh, he 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 took me on his uh, on his airplane once. It's about the only uh, personal involvement I really had with him. Yeah, but he was he was a nice guy, but like I say, he was he was kind of uh, cordial. I would say. Sure. Uh, a little what reserved, a, basically. What a, what but, about uh, the other cast members? Well, I I I I went head to head with uh, Jane Wyatt uh, when we first started, and she's a, a, a devout uh, Catholic. And I'm as devoutly atheist as she was devoutly Catholic, <laughs> and so we'd go back and forth. And the way the way we'd go, the, what she would try and insist on was that I wasn't really an atheist; I was more like agnostic. And so I, I, I kind of I said, oh, "Well, I didn't say okay to that," but but I let it slide a little bit. And so eventually, we uh, we we determined that we we agreed to disagree on. Uh, on the on the the value of Catholicism, because I I did grow up uh, in in uh, not entirely, but uh, I did several years in Catholic uh, schools, and so I had my uh, my my share of the, the nuns and all that. So th- we had some very animated conversations about the Catholicism, but uh, she wasn't getting off her point, and I wasn't getting off mine. So. But she turned out to be a, 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 a dear, dear friend for the rest of her life. And, uh, she even, more uh, well, she, she would invite me to tea. That was kind of one thing we did over the years. And uh, she was a member of the academy, so they would, uh, they would. She had invitations to see the, uh, the various uh, uh, things that were nominated. 
and she would invite me to be on her arm to go to uh, movies and and she was she was a, a theatrical uh, enthusiast as well so we'd go see plays together and and we had a lifelong friendship and uh, she was a very dear dear person and and she uh, she made a provision that uh, that I'd be requested to be one of her uh, pallbearers oh and uh, I was uh, I was honored to do that and, I'm sure she, she, sure. she and I really did, did get close together. Uh, the the girls and I kept in touch, but we weren't all that, you know. I mean, she, they had their lives and I had my lives. We never, we we didn't socialize or anything. But uh, but but you know, they were they were good friends. But uh, they all they all had uh, their own their own existences, so to say. Did did get aside from ending your uh, TV career? Did the busting, the dope busting, have any other effect on your life? That was, I hope it was a misdemeanor. Well, it it wasn't actually. It was a, it was a felony, and and I got one to ten, and uh, with a suspended uh, sentence, I I did like ninety days in a place called uh, Wayside Honor Ranch, uh, and uh, and got to got a probationary tail and the whole thing and. And found out that the I was with M, uh, MCA at the time, and I forget who who the agent was, but uh, he said, "No, we don't, uh, we can't handle you anymore." And uh, I think I got another agent and found that I wasn't uh, I was persona non grata in Hollywood uh, because you know like the the all American boy uh, dope fiend is uh, was was what came down basically and. You don't want to hire a, a heroin addict, and nobody made any uh, uh, distinction between drugs in those days. Drugs were, were uh, you know, uh, well even 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 marijuana was had that movie. Was it uh, uh, Reefer Madness? Reefer Madness, exactly. And they had you know people going berserk and crazy on uh, on on after after a few pokes, you know. So I. I uh, I, I didn't feel uh, uh, like it was the end of the world or anything because, uh, you know, I, I I have other interests. But uh, and, and fortunately, I was able to find another interest that, uh, that filled that uh, that filled the need to perform because I did like acting. I was I thought I was pretty good at it, actually. And I I, uh, I, I would have gone on to have a career, I'm sure, or something along the lines of uh, Michael Fox. Uh, you know, we were both about the same height. and. Uh, and, uh, he's a good actor, and, uh, and so I, I might have had a career like that. But uh, but I, like I say, I started at five, so I, I and I did I did quite a few movies, and and uh, so I didn't have any stars in my eyes. I, you know, I, the business was a business, and it was a job, and I liked doing it. But uh, it wasn't the end of the world for me. And fortunately, I found Speedway after that. So you, you uh, when you say you found Speedway and you, this is motorcycle racing. What we're talking about? Yeah, it's a very special kind of motorcycle racing too. It's just a, these are 500 cc uh, uh, engines, and they uh, they only have one gear, unless you're on a long track, and then they have a starting gear and a and a, and a high gear. But most of the races that, that I was in were small track races, and uh, and so it's one gear. And so what you do is there's four people at a time and uh, you, there's a gate uh, with three little bands in front of you and you, you, you line up at this gate and you grab a handful and then the gate goes up and you let the clutch out and you go for four laps. 
And then if you if you finish first or second, you qualify for a semi. And then if you finish first or second in the semi, you qualify for a main event. And uh, there was five tracks uh, right around uh, uh, Los Angeles, within 100 miles of Los Angeles. And I raced at all five, uh, you know, five nights a week for, well, and then a couple of tracks closed. It was three nights a week for a while. But it was uh, it went on for 20, uh, 23 years, and I couldn't have loved it any more than, than, than life itself, which was just who, the most uh, Who introduced the sport to you? Well, I'd, I'd had a, uh, when I was 15, I got a motorcycle, uh, a matchless uh, 500. And I had that, to, you know, with a learner's permit, you could, uh, you could drive a motorcycle at 15 and a half. Right. And that, and that, that got burned. I, a friend of mine, uh, I let him ride it and he burned it up. So the next, the next bike I got was a, uh, a 650 Triumph. I, uh, I, I outfitted it for the drag races. Uh, uh, we had Saugus gra- drag strip and San Fernando and San Bernardino. There was one as well. And so I did that uh, uh, during the 50s, early 50s, uh, until uh, I did that for several years, uh, just the drag racing with this bike. And uh, and then the Father Knows Best found out that I was I was going to the drag races on the weekends, and they said, Nah, we don't think that's such a good idea. <laughs> oh, God. So so I, I I I stopped doing that, but. Uh, when I saw when I saw the speedway, I, I went to a, a, a speedway race. Uh, a friend of mine down the street uh, told me about it, and and uh, we both went. and And I saw these uh, these guys going around in these speedway bikes. It was at the uh, sports arena in uh, Los Angeles for the '69 uh, California State Championship. Now, I I was just intrigued with it. Uh, you know, I, I thought that I could do it, and. Uh, I, uh, I I went down afterwards into the pits and talked it up with a few people and got in touch with uh, some people and uh, finally got a ride on somebody's backup bike and uh, next year and, uh, and started in the second division and banged into the walls uh, over and over and over and over and uh, finally got into the uh, first division and and uh, and then was. Uh, I didn't. I never made the top ten. I made. I made uh, fifteen. This is as good as I got. But I loved it. I loved it more than life itself. Like I say, it was just. It was so thrilling and so 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 theatrical, actually, because uh, you could hear the audience, and then they would scream for you and all that kind of stuff. And and you were performing, and uh, it, it, it is a performance, and uh, and except it's real. Did you? you, uh, you are, excuse me. Did did you? save your money from father knows best so you were okay for a while or did you yeah i was i was i was getting a residual the, the residual deal was not a, a, a really great one uh we have uh uh, uh what's his name uh, uh regan to thank for that he was the head of the screen actors guild when the when the residual contracts were, were written up and then after he stopped being the head of the screen actors guild he, he became a producer so uh, the, the the residual deal that he uh, structured was not all that great. You got paid uh, uh, a total of the uh, the weekly salary at the time. The minimum weekly, which was, I think was two hundred and fifty bucks uh, a week at the time, and uh, and they would spread that out over six reruns of each episode. So the first rerun, you'd get uh, uh, 
uh, $80. In the second rerun, you'd get 60. And then the third rerun, you'd get 40. And then the final rerun, you'd get 20. And it all had to add up after all those six reruns to uh, 250 bucks or something along those lines. So it wasn't a great deal. And it ended there. You know, uh, that was the end of it. Six reruns was it. So I had that money coming in, which was not, you know, uh, in in those days, it was it was it was it was good enough for me to not have to worry. Let's put it that way. So I sure, I sure. get like fifteen hundred bucks every month or so, and that, that would cover my nut. And so I didn't really have to work. I I didn't uh, I didn't really and and the only work that was available to me were stuff that was uh, more more kind of Bud Anderson stuff. Uh, you know, it wasn't uh, wasn't anything like. Uh, but uh, you know, Bobby Blake got into uh, you know the name of that movie that he did that was so uh, got him started as an actor. I think really uh, in Cold Blood. In Cold Blood, yeah. You know, I mean, like, a I but but Anderson was not going to get a cold in Cold Blood character to play. You know. <laughs> but you made money from your motorcycle riding. Well, I made enough for it. Uh, it was it is professional. But there and and what it was was uh, it was thirty percent of the gross gate was the purse, and if and if you if you're good enough you could make a living at it. And there were a few guys, there were half a dozen guys, that were good enough to make a living at it. I just I just kind of made enough money to so that I could do it. I didn't I wasn't making I wasn't putting anything in the bank for sure, but uh, but it, it did help uh, pay for the fuel. We we ran nitromethane uh, uh, in those days, the early days. And they that, were, that doesn't like, sound very safe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, but but I did. I I had racing, uh, uh, you know, through you know, like like I said, five nights a week for for years, and so it took care of uh, it took care of my uh, my passion for uh, for showing off, basically. Uh, considering he was also somewhat obsessed with motorcycles, did your path ever cross Steve McQueen's? Never did. No, no. I I saw the Great Escape, and uh, and uh, I was appreciated his uh, his artistry, but uh, oh, I yeah. never met him. Riding a Triumph, by the way. Yeah, riding a Triumph, and that's what I had was a Triumph too. Sure, my drag sure. bike was a Triumph. Yeah. I've done a couple of documentaries on that film, as well as writing about it and commenting on it, and uh, got to be friendly with a guy named Bud Eakins, who was his oh yeah, uh, Bud Eakins. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that, but Eakins made the manifolds that I used uh, on my my drag bike. The, oh, there you uh, the, go. the triumph, the, the triumph that we ran, uh, Thunderbird, or, or basically uh, six fifty uh, uh, two cylinders, and the two cylinders uh, have have one port on each side. And Bud Eakins made a a manifold that that covered both ports so that you could have them uh, uh, spread out uh, and and pointed in the same direction as the port was on the head. So it, uh, it was for, for for racing purposes. It was a superior manifold. So I I had a Bud Eakins manifold. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's funny because McQueen's jump in the um, in the movie, which is considered one of the great stunts, of course, wasn't McQueen. It was Bud, because just like you weren't allowed to ride your motorcycle during Father's <laughs> yeah. Christmas, neither was Steve allowed to jump his motorcycle in The Great Escape. Well, one of the guys uh, who I raced against, uh, 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 Mike Bast, was who was uh, six or seven times national champion, and 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 really the the, the, the he was the 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 
the Nureyev of, of, of the Speedway uh, world. Uh, and he's so good that everybody else was just wanted to, it was racing for second place. And and he he did stunt work on motorcycles too. And uh, so I, I, my best, actually my best race was against him. Uh, uh, I, uh, I, I was on a motorcycle that wasn't my own and, uh, and it was a it was a very stiff motorcycle. Uh, the, the fellow who made it, Pete Smiley, he, he made the whole frame himself out of uh, chromoly tubing, which was much stiffer than the uh, than the stuff that was used in the stock in the stock frames. So, because he, he the the normal rider was big guy, big Mike Connolly, and he was two hundred pounds plus, and so he had to have a real stiff bike. But and when I rode, uh, he got hurt, and I, I got on this uh, on this this stiff bike for a few few weeks, and I couldn't make I couldn't get any traction at all because it was so stiff on the on on the pole, but the the rear wheel would just go zzz zzz, zzz and so I couldn't go anywhere. So I I, I uh, one time I tried going to the outside where, uh, where where the fresh dirt was where it was deep where it was like an inch inch deep or so. And and I found that I could I could uh, control it uh, perfectly because it was so stiff it, it it was totally controllable. It was a very strong strong motor too. But anyway, I was up I was I got to a main event with uh, Mike Bast and, and Bruce Benhall, who uh, who went on to become two time world champion. And and I'm I'm totally the underdog in this race. And I, I go out to the outside and, uh, and and get in the in this dirt this this heavy dirt. And uh, and Mike Bass comes out and does a big slide job on me, you know, just it slides right in front of me. And so I have to turn left real quick and go underneath him, and I pass him coming out. And we do this every lap. There was 15 lead changes in in a four lap race. He passed me, and then I passed him, and he passed me, and then I passed him, and he, 15 times. It was a it was a dream race. You couldn't make it up. You know, if you made it up, people wouldn't believe it. And uh, so I, I got to I got to pass Mike past eight times, and for a win on uh, on him, and, and totally out of my league. It was just it was just because I happened to be on a motorcycle that, that I could ride in the deep dirt. <laughs> so so speedway races are on a dirt track. Absolutely, and and usually not enough dirt. The 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 uh, the, the, the the ugly part about speedway is that the everybody holds holds themselves as close to the pole as they can because that's the shortest way around right so it becomes a blue groove develops on on the on right on the pole and and if you get your rear wheel off that blue groove there's no traction at all and so it's just kind of it turns into a a train race everybody just follows each other around and the person who gets the uh, the jump on the start usually wins the race so it's kind of boring for the for the fans and for the riders for that matter so I, I came up with a, a concept of, of, a, of a diamond-shaped infield, but not an oval, where you, where you can just stick on the pole and nobody can get by you unless they bump you out of the way, because you're usually not enough dirt on the outside to, to, to have an outside line, so you could go around. There just usually isn't enough dirt. But uh, my, my concept was to make it a diamond to, so, that, so that right at the apex of the turn, it's a point rather than, a, rather than an oval. And uh, I, I just about a, year, a couple of years ago, I was able to get uh, some really good riders uh, on a on a racetrack that uh, that had a diamond infield, and got together some some real good racing because there was passing. You, if you if you try and stick to the 
stick to the diamond, uh, you know, like try and stay on the pole, you have to slow down so much so that uh, you, you you leave room for somebody to come around you on the outside. And if you if you if you go in real close, you're gonna be you're gonna leave a little room on the on the inside coming out, so somebody could come underneath you. And if you if you leave a lot of room going in so that you can come out tight, you leave enough room to somebody can do a slide job on you on the inside. So my theory was that it would put on better races, and it did. But uh, but then just just I did that in February of uh, year before last, and. Uh, I, I I had a bunch of film together, and I wanted to put it uh, put it together and, and and get a sponsorship on on that kind of racing. But the COVID came along, and I couldn't uh, I couldn't get uh, nobody wanted to to work with me on uh, on the uh, cutting it together to get a little presentation piece. But uh, it still it still may happen. But th- that's my uh, that's my long term plan was to to show Speedway as a, as a real, as a real event. Cause it's, it's so elegant uh, and, and dynamic and, uh, and, and, and honorable is there's, there's an honor about it. Uh, it's really, it is, you don't see it in other, every other, other types of racing are, 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 are okay, but they, they're just not as elegant as this uh, Speedway is. Sure. Sure. Um, the fans, when when pre-COVID and certainly hopefully again go to these autograph conventions, do you still go to those once in a while? I did. I did for a while. I went to a couple. Uh, uh, they had had uh, one once a year at the uh, some hotel in Burbank. I think I forgot exactly where it was, but uh, yeah, I did a couple of those, or, or actually more than a couple, probably a couple dozen uh, over the sure. years. And, uh, yeah, and it's always it's always kind of fun. People stand there and tell you how how, how they liked your your work, you know, and they and they give you money for an autograph. Not 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 so bad. No, not so bad. And it, it's like a time machine going. I mean, just talking to you tonight, just I feel like uh, we're back in the '70s when I first talked to you, and uh, just you you relating your experiences on the day the Earth stood still, which is, you know. 70 plus years old uh is just yeah, i know it is kind of crazy um you've been you've uh we've been listening to uh bill gray by the by the way i have it's, to ask it's, it's really billy gray you know i i have friends that were really serious or or or, or kind of uh off the wall about uh adding a y bobby blake was one that you just if you called him bobby he'd go bananas you know and Bobby Driscoll, same thing. He didn't want to be Bobby at all. Well, I don't have a problem with Billy. I kind of like Billy, you know. So well, it's funny you should say that because that was one of the questions I was going to ask you is when you went from Billy to Bill. I had naturally assumed you were Bill. It's funny because I've met Billy Moomy a few times, and I've called him Bill, and I think he liked it. But I'm so glad you because we all know you as Billy Gray. Billy Gray is. It's funny, my writing partner is Billy Reback, and he's 68, and he's completely fine with Billy. So uh, I'm glad you said that. I'm, yeah, <laughs> well, right. everybody, we've been listening to Billy Gray, and Billy Gray, is. is I, it was a great interview, Billy. And and uh, I, I really th- I thank you for all of your good work, not only in front of the camera, but on the track. And I'm glad you're you're out well, there. Hey, if there's if there's any anybody listening who plays the guitar, you, you got to check out uh, uh, bigrockmfg.com. 
and uh, I, I got my I had a partner, a business partner, who played the guitar, and he'd tell me about problems that he had, and and I'd come up with solutions. So there's there's half a dozen really uh, really neat, I think, uh, 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 guitar accessories on that uh, website. So check it out. Oh, perfect. And that's NFG. Is that Nancy Fox? Great. That's manufacturing. Just manufacturing. Oh, MFG. 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 Got it. MFG. Yeah. Got a Big rock. MFG.com. Great. Great. Well, everyone, you've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. We've had a wonderful discussion with Billy Gray. Thank you, Billy, for joining us. And God bless you. Uh, stay safe out there. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Bye. You're welcome. Bye.